The Lord be with you. you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. Lord, we need it. We need it so much. We need your grace. We need your love. We need for you to um, meet us uh, where we are. And so, God, as we come to this very famous and uh, very scandalous story today, we ask that you would um, be our teacher, that the light of your Spirit would both um, convict us where we need convicting, comfort us where we need comforting, and um, protect us uh, where we need protecting. We pray, God, for the humility to hear your word uh, and to be drawn to it and to draw to you through it. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, last week we saw the, the glory of David and David and Goliath. We saw the covenant that God made with David. Uh, there will be someone from your line on the throne of Israel forever. Of course, that is fulfilled in Jesus. But today we come to the big uh, asterisks in David's life. Uh, we come to the... Um, the, probably, other than the crucifixion, maybe the most famous sin uh, in all of Scripture, um, maybe, maybe, maybe after the crucifixion and the, um, and the Garden of Eden. But uh, I would say whenever somebody says anything about King David, it's, yeah, but. Um, and they're always talking about David and Bathsheba. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're in 2 Samuel 11. I was also going to talk about uh, King Solomon a little bit, but I think it's better just to stick to David and Bathsheba. But what we're going to do is we're actually going to skip ahead to Psalm 51, which is Lesson 42 in the E100. I do have extra E100 books up here. If you'd like, uh, you're, we're not really following along in them, but if you'd like one, uh, we, I'd be, love to give you one um, for $10. Um, the, um, or so. So there's just so much wrong with David in this story. Right? I mean, you know the story, and we're going to read it, but there's just so much wrong. And we could use this story to teach and to preach against lust, or laziness, or lying, or murder, or abuse of power. We could use uh, these, this story to teach against any of those things, but ultimately this is a story about a great and faithful man who sinned greatly. And that's, that's what we're going to talk about. What do we do when a faithful person commits a very faithless act? Now last week I told you that this, uh, this would be called, the title of this class would be called The Beginning of the End. And I, I have been thinking about that and I changed the title. Uh, the, chi- the title of this is You Can't Fall from Grace. You Can't Fall from Grace. Now, when I said, what are we to do when a very faithful person commits a very faithless act, you probably thought of someone. You probably just flashed in your mind, uh, you thought about something someone did. Maybe it was someone close to you. Maybe it was a televangelist. Or maybe you thought about something you did. And that you, and maybe maybe it's been very public, maybe it's been very secret. But what do we do when a faithless, a faithful person does a faithless thing? So what we're going to do is we're going to go through the sin, 
of David, and we're going to go through the solution that God provides, and we're going to look at David's response in Psalm 51. And we want to see that even here, God gives grace. So we just prayed in in uh, uh, in right one uh, in the Eucharist. His property is always to have mercy. So let me read Second um, Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. Joab was his, his number one general. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. That is such a stinging indictment. It's very, very subtle, but it's, yeah. it's just a stinging indictment. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now you probably know, and you'll find out if you didn't, that Uriah is one of his most fierce and loyal warriors. He is in David's 30. So there are 30 um, uh, sort of, I guess they would be light sub-generals, you know, and, and, uh, or captains or whatever, and they, colonels, and they, they are uh, some of the, just the ones that he has relied on from the very beginning. And so Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a long journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, like tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my own house and to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uh-oh. Then David said to Uriah, Well, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. 
In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew that there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises and he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubbesheth? Did not a woman cast an, up, cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say to David, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And David said to the messenger, Well, thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. When the morning was over, the M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, morning, uh, the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, I should say so. There's a scene in the movie, uh, The Godfather 3, where Don Corleone is talking with a very high-ranking Vatican cardinal. And he, Don Corleone is uh, explaining, he doesn't say it quite like this, but he has been given a taste of his own medicine. He has been swindled in a deal by an archbishop. He... Don Corleone, as you may remember, has tried, he's tried to go clean and get away from the mob life. And he thought he was doing a real service to the archbishop and to the church by giving him an extraordinary amount of money, which the archbishop took. And the guarantor of that deal was the Vatican Bank. So uh, Corleone has gone to talk to this archbishop, I mean this cardinal. And the cardinal says, well, if, this is, if what you say is true, this will be a very great scandal. He is completely calm the whole time he's talking. And he reaches over into a fountain and pulls out a rock. And he says, you see this rock? And he has this great Italian accent, which I won't try to replicate. He says, you see this rock? This rock has been in the water a very long time. And he smashes the rock down on the side of the... Um, on the side of the fountain so that the rock breaks. He says, but this rock has been in the water a very long time, but inside the rock is perfectly dry because the water has not penetrated. He said, this is just like the hearts of men. where They have been around the church all their lives for centuries, but Christ has not penetrated their hearts. 
And I think of that scene when I think about David. Now, David did not have an entirely dry heart, but he did an entirely dry thing with Bathsheba. It was the time, uh, it was the springtime, the time when kings go out to battle. But David sent Joab, and David remained in Jerusalem. David got lazy. He got complacent. He'd earned it, right? He'd been in many battles. He'd done his share. He'd served his time. And you know how things are. When things aren't too high, they're not too low. They're just kind of cruising along. We just can take our eye off the ball sometimes. And I think that's what happened to David. We, we begin in those seasons of just ease. In those seasons, we begin to maybe just afford ourselves little pleasures with a wink. <laughs> Will hurt anybody? No big deal. And it, I don't know what that is for you, but it um, it seems that David was in a season like that, um, and his prayers sort of became rote, and his worship became routine. And what happens when we lose our spiritual vigilance is that we lose our intimacy with God. And it starts us down a slippery slope that doesn't seem like a big deal at the time. But, you know, it's sort of like that frog that you put him in cold water. Is it, the, is it a frog? Is that, is that way? You, and you begin to boil it and they don't know it's boiling uh, because they're just in it. I guess it would be because they're cold-blooded. But um, when we lose that spiritual vigilance, we actually begin to dig ditches for ourselves to fall into. And... We wake up and we realize we're in a mess that we didn't mean to create for ourselves. Or we try to get out of the ditch by digging the ditch a little deeper, um, as if that's going to help. It's an odd paradox, I think, to, to, if you know that you need mercy, then you're more likely to stay away from needing mercy. If you know you need mercy... If you're constantly confessing your need for God's grace, you're more likely to stay away from situations, stay away from the ditch, stay away from the situations where you need mercy. But if you forget that you need mercy, you're soon going to be reminded. And that is where David uh, found himself. We regularly see pastors, I mean, we're the ones that make the news when. Um, when, when pastors tank their ministries because they sleep with a parishioner or a secretary or run off with the money or whatever it is. It's, uh, my mentor, Frank Limehouse, used to always say, it's always either sex or money. You know, whenever it's always sex or money. I don't know what happened. Well, it's one of two things. It's always sex or money. <laughs> and, you know, that pastor doesn't wake up one day and think, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to tank 30 years worth of uh, work that I put into this. I'm just, I'm just going to sink the whole thing. Of course not. They lose it by degrees. Right? And the pastors are the ones that make the, um, the news, but it can happen in, in anything. I mean, there's whole industries around uh, counseling, around uh, business strategy for CEOs and people like this that do the, the very same thing. They slip gradually. They afford themselves little pleasures with a wink, and it becomes a very slippery slope 
that you don't even realize you're slipping on until you're halfway down or further, right? And I just know, you know David is looking down from heaven in his place, and I do very much believe that David is there. He's looking down from he- heaven just thanking God that he, was not in an, he did not live in an age of social media. <laughs> right? He would have been on the, co- the cover of every newspaper in the world. He would have been on Fox News and CNN and MSNBC and whatever they have. Al Jazeera. He would have been there. And, um, and, and he, people, I mean, angry emojis all over the place. They would have wanted, and, and understandably, rightfully so, they would have wanted David's head, right? Um, what he did was terrible. Not only as if it weren't bad enough that he slept with the wife of one of his most loyal and fierce subjects, but he had to cover up his sin without blinking. He was the king. I mean, nobody, you know, hardly anybody noticed. He just, all, Joab knew it, but Joab was going to do what he said. And he trusted Uriah in all of his integrity not to open the letter. He sent Uriah back with the letter in his hand. It's a little unclear. I mean, if you read, if you read the... Um, it's a little unclear as if Uriah is not maybe on to David. The author doesn't tell us, and I think that's with great purpose. Did he know? And you know how it is when, um, and I'm sure you're not because you've been in that situation, because you've heard, you talked to a friend, that, um, <laughs> that um, when, 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 you, when you're afraid of being found out, that's all you can think about. No, the person you're talking to, they're not thinking about it, but all you can think is, I know they know, I know they know, and they're trying to, you know, like they just, you're just totally paranoid. And David is just trying to figure out a way to get himself out of this jam so he gets Uriah drunk. Uriah has integrity, even in the midst of his drunkenness. Uh, again, just a stinging indictment of David. And, um, and you probably have not ever done something to match that. But you've slipped away from the Lord at some point. We all have. And you've toyed with that slippery slope, whatever that looks like in your life. So what are we to do when a faithful person commits a faithless act? And what are we to do, especially when we are the faithful the person who commits the faithless act? It's a really important question. And one that I hope you'll take very seriously. Again, because the more you know you need mercy, the less you toy with the ditch. So let me read the solution. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Now Nathan, you may remember, is the prophet. His sort of number one prophet, his confidant, his uh, go-to guy. And Nathan came to him and said... You jerk. <laughs> it's, what he, it's, what, it's what we might be tempted to do, but I think he's very, very wise. Now, maybe this is a word from the Lord. This is the way the Lord did it, but I, it's an incredible wisdom in the way that Nathan approaches David. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had, had bought. And he brought it up and he grew and it grew up with him and his children and he used to eat his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. 
Now there came a traveler to the rich man who would come to him, and he was unwilling, the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who would come to him. But he took the poor man's one lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. See, Nathan, it's a parable, but Nathan kind of tells it as if he's reporting a, an incident that happened out somewhere in the country. And, um, and David seems to respond as if he thinks this has actually happened. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he has had no pity. So David is still the king. He knows he's principled, even though he has not seen the disintegrity of his own principles with his own life. He knows right and wrong. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. Or in the great King James, thou art the man. Has a lot more weight to it. You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in His sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. You weaponize your enemies against your loyal servant, is what he's saying. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord. It's the second time we've got a thus says the Lord. It's serious business. Because, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. S-U-N. In broad daylight. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not not die. That is just, like, unfair, right? He's put away his sin. What in the world? Are you kidding? You can't fall from grace. Nevertheless, because by, this, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. God doesn't let him get away with it, right? He sends Nathan. What a gracious gift that God has given David to have a prophet who is willing to confront him. Now when someone confronts you with your own sin, that is, I mean, you don't want to hear that. Because sometimes, I mean, usually when somebody comes to you and says, a brother or sister, I, I need to speak the truth to you in love. I mean, the best thing to do is just run. You know, get out of there. Get away. Um, Psalm 141 says, Let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. If you trust the source, it's good to listen. 
And again, there's wisdom in the way that, that Nathan comes to him because he doesn't confront him directly. Um, he probably knows better than to confront David like that. He certainly knows better than to confront a king like that. But he traps him in his own mess. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. He gives David the opportunity to see the heinousness of the crime as a filter, and then he overlays the filter on his own life. And let it also be said that Nathan did not confront David without first hearing from the Lord. So if you feel compelled to be that confrontational friend, Make sure that you have said your prayers. And not just that you've prayed about it, God bless what I'm about to do because I'm going to let Him have it. (laughs) Hear from the Lord. And if it takes a while, wait. Nathan's not confronting David because Nathan is mad. He's confronting David as God's messenger in order to help David. That's a really important distinction. Because when I confront someone who, that I'm mad about, it doesn't go that well usually. Nor when someone confronts me. I mean, think about it, just think about your own household. When you're somebody, you know, my kid or my wife has done something, and it's, I'm mad. You know, I'm just going to let them have it. Much better to forgive from your heart and wait to hear from the Lord. Yes, Susan. I have a question. Why would... Why would God not speak directly to him instead of through Nathan? I don't have an answer for that. The question is, why would David? Why would God not speak directly to David? I think David uh, has demonstrated that he was not listening to the Lord. It's just the way that God did it. I mean, you look at every miracle. Like, there's several um, miracles that Jesus does where he heals someone who's blind. He never does it the same way twice. He just does it how he does it. It's the right way every time. I don't know the answer to that. Well, God also... Mm-hmm. No, go ahead, Darla. Uh, and, then, and then Katie. Um, God also uh, basically gave Nathan David's mail to read. I mean, and, I mean, Nathan wouldn't have known had not the Lord told right. him. Right. So, yeah, he didn't just hear it around the water cooler, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so David knew this came from God. That's right. That's right. And I'll have people come to me after the service and say, "Are you reading my mail?" Like you know, they hear the you know they hear the of the sermon and they just think that was you know he's he looked gave me a little too much eye contact and that you know. Um, but the um, but the truth is that's just the spirit of the Lord working as a grace to David, Katie. Well, I think from my own experience, I can say that you know people I'm sure now have been sent to me from God. To help me see my sin, yes. But I wasn't ready to see it, mm-hmm. and it works. Repentance works best when you can see your sin, and sometimes that takes a board over the head. Well, yeah, I think I would say repentance only works when you can see yeah. your sin. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. Um, there are earthly consequences. Um, and that's why I would have called this the beginning of the end, because the sin of the father is passed down. I mean, we see that Solomon's downfall is going to be that he um, has, like, I don't know, 780 wives or something like that, and, and, um, which would be a lot to handle. And, um, the, um, but, but it's not even that. It's the wives that he has, which is amazing. 
We're moving along. Um, the, uh, the wives he has actually begins to marry, uh, bring into his house wives and concubines that are not Israelite. They're, they're Gentile. And, and they pull him away, pull his heart and his worship away as he tries to accommodate. But David, I think this is the beginning and the, the end because David, uh, we see also, I mean, of course, Solomon is, is not even close to David's first son. So there's a lot of jealousy. There's, a lot of, there's murder. There's all sorts of dysfunction in David's family. And I think this is the root. It's David's lust. There are earthly consequences to our sin, but there's also great grace. Because, I mean, I think that's important to distinguish. Sometimes we have to walk through, the, we can't say, well, God's forgiven me, I should just be forgiven. Like, you, gotta de- you hurt somebody, you've got to deal with the consequences of that. You need to make it up, you need to pay back the money, or whatever it is. You need to go to jail, pay your debt, whatever it is. You need to, there are earthly consequences. But that's, separate from God's forgiveness and His grace. And you will be brought into the land of, of light and joy. Actually, interesting, just yesterday uh, at Bob Askren's funeral, there was a remembrance given by a man um, named uh, Bernie DeCastro. I don't know if you were here. Bernie got up. It was such an amazing thing. He said, um, I met Bob in prison. Now, a lot of you didn't know that Bob was in prison. This is 1981, um, but Bob was in prison because he was working with a ministry called Kairos. And what I expected then is to say it was a great ministry that we participated in together. But no, no, no. Bernie said, uh, I was one of the inmates. And Bob, uh, this was actually Bernie's fourth time into uh, jail, to prison, and he was a lifer. He'd had three strikes plus one. He was out. He was a lifer. Life plus 30. Life plus 30, right, yeah. And so, um, so he, he, was, he was in there for good. He was putting on his own wallpaper. So he, the, um, uh, and Bob got to know him, brought him to the Lord, and Bob um, had formed a relationship with him over time. Bernie would call him from prison, collect. Bob went to the parole board, what was it, three, four times? Third time's a charm. And um, third time, they finally let Bernie out. Bob and his wife at the time, Kathy, uh, brought Bernie into their home to live with them. Bernie said, don't ever do that. That is a really bad idea to bring a felon into your home. But he did it, and it worked out. And Bernie fell in love with Bob's daughter and married him. They had five kids. Oh, my God. It was an amazing story of redemption. But Bernie had earthly consequences, and yet God's grace was... I was like, I'm going to use that in a sermon sometime soon, and here we are. But uh, the, uh, uh, it, was, it was an amazing story, and just uh, God... There were earthly consequences to, to his sin, but there was an amazing redemption. Um, God says, uh, Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin, and you shall not die. But the son is going to... the child is going to die. It was a, you know, it's just, it's just a, just a heart-wrenching story. This David and Bathsheba. I want to turn to uh, Psalm 51. This is the psalm that we always read on Good Friday. And in fact, I preached on this psalm uh, on Ash Wednesday this past year. So um, you probably remember that word for word. The, um, the. Um, this is a psalm of of humiliation in a psalm of, of repentance. And this is how David is dealing with, this is, this is his response. When he says, I have sinned greatly against the Lord, this is, this is the fuller prayer. 
Have mercy on me, O God. According to Your steadfast love, according to Your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And again, you know, social media would say, how dare you ask to, be for, to blot out my transgressions? But that is grace. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And I always think, how? I mean, that just gets all over. How can David say against you and you only have I sinned? I mean, look at the wreckage that he committed against Bathsheba, against Uriah and his family, and against his own family. Against the, against the, the king, the office of king. But ultimately at his root, all sin is vertical. Yeah, Dorla. I've uh, often wondered if Bathsheba was even a willing partner in that. It doesn't say, yeah. It doesn't say, and also she apparently really lamented her husband, who was probably a very good husband, as loyal as he was to David, and I'm sure he was faithful to her too. Yeah, I, I think, so the question is, is, um, is Bathsheba a willing partner? It doesn't say... I think that ultimately, I mean, and maybe this is just because I live in a Me Too generation, but I think, I think ultimately she is the vi- a victim. She, had, she was powerless to say no. But was she willing and complicit? I, I don't know. Uh, it's, it doesn't say. But what, what is very clear is that David has committed. We don't say anything about Bathsheba being convicted of sin. Um, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. And, and what I want to understand is this. It's not that there, it, he didn't sin against other people, but sin is ultimately in first vertical. Because it says, I have something more important to me than God, which is a violation of the first commandment. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment against me. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me, meaning just she was a sinner, not that there was something, something awful about it, I don't think. We're not told that in Scripture. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. See, David's appealing to the declaration of God. That is, that is grace. He's appealing to what God says about him more than what he has done. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out uh, all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So when right before the uh, Eucharist, if you see us, uh, the clergy were washing our hands in a little bowl. It's not actual washing. It's just totally symbolic. And, but that's the prayer. I'm not sure what Trent prays, but that's the prayer that I pray. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me as the water's coming over my fingers here. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. What David is doing here is he is taking refuge in the God whom he has offended. The only one who can make it right is the one against whom David made it wrong. And that is trusting the heart of God for grace. The only way to fall from grace is not to return and seek it. 
there's a pastor, he used to be a pastor of um, Coral Ridge Presbyterian. You remember listening to D. James Kennedy on the, on the radio, Coral Ridge. Uh, the, the one who succeeded him is a guy named Tullian Chivijan. Super good looking, just unfortunately good looking. Um, and um, his grandfather, you may have heard of, uh, Billy Graham. And, um, but Tullian Chivijan, uh, he obviously was from Billy through his mom's side, but he married, his mom married a, uh, I can't remember what, what, is, what ethnicity or what country he's from, but um, just, you know, kind of dark skin, just these piercing gray eyes, just, again, too handsome. And, um, and he um, had sort of left in scandal, uh, like immediately, like he was gone. All his sermons were off the internet. And it came out, and it took a while for him to see his own sin. Um, he first said, I, um, his explanation was, I found out my wife was having an affair, so I uh, took solace in the arms of, uh, foolishly in the arms of, of another. Like he blamed his wife, you know, like uh, for his own sin. And she said, uh, let's just say we don't see things the same way, was her only statement. But after years of like therapy and, 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 Actually, a failed attempt, and he fell back again. Anyway, he's married now. I mean, he's the first to say that we sh- I sh- they were right to fire me, and I should, uh, I, sh- I should not have, in a, in a sense, that, that, was, that discipline was a grace to him. But, um, but he also wrote to the church, not to, I mean, to the wider church, saying, if you have an opportunity, welcome someone in that way. And he actually goes around now and counsels and helps people who have been that because God is using that. But it was, it was terrible and it was awful. And it was the time where he experienced the grace that he got to preach. And I pray that I never experience that. But I pray that I'll always remember that I need mercy. Um, God's property is always to have mercy. And I think that's what this story uh, of David and Bathsheba uh, teaches us as un-PC uh, as that is maybe one or two questions and then we got to go to church Any, anybody comments well put that in your pipe and smoke it and uh, let that settle I hope that you hear grace in that that God loves you no matter what that you are in fact uh, saved not by walking to church in the rain but by the grace of God. Yes, Jesus. I just want to say I think there are no questions because we're just all so overwhelmed with how you presented that. It's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. yeah, praise God. Thank you. Next week, next week we are looking at the life of King Solomon, uh, thirty chapter thirty-seven and thirty-eight in the E one hundred. First, First Kings, chapter two, chapter three, chapter eight, and the first part of chapter nine. Two, three, eight, and the first part of chapter nine. King Solomon. See you in church.